Welcome to the 500th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today in this 500th episode, I discuss COVID calls, how it started, what I've attempted to do with the project and some of the ways I hope people will use it in the future. Thanks for tuning in. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of today, March 19th, 2022, 6,070,891 people around the world have lost their lives to COVID-19. In the United States, 970,806 people have died. In Brazil, 657,098. In India, 516,281 people have died. In South Korea, 12,101 people have died from COVID-19. Of those, 4,863 in the last month with an Omicron wave that has been worse every single day this week. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that reading now. The headline, Anna Mae Morris courageously fought to survive her battle with COVID-19. We prayed and we stayed by her side until her very last breath on Good Friday, April 2nd, 2021. She was 60 years old. This was written by Johnny Jay and appeared April 11th, 2021 in Indian Country Today. Our beautiful mother, Anna Mae Morris, prayed and courageously fought to survive her battle with COVID-19. We prayed and we stayed by her side until her very last breath on Good Friday, April 2nd, 2020, 2021. She was 60 years old. That's the thing about prayer in life. You don't always get what you want or the answer you seek. When our lives are invaded by struggles and heartache, by senseless tragedies and loss, we often find ourselves asking, why are we going through this? We question and we second guess every decision and desperately search for any answer that would make it all make sense. There are no good answers, no reasoning or solution that can take away the frustration, confusion, pain, and heartache that you feel when you lose your mother so senselessly. But there is a promise that we will cling to, as our mother did. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's a quotation from Romans 8.18. God has promised that our darkest days, that every suffering and sorrow will not be in vain but used to serve the purpose and glory of the kingdom of God. It was not our mother's time, and we were not ready to let her go, but we know that it was well with her soul because her glory had been revealed as she was received into heaven. Anna was a beautifully complicated human being, born on March 19, 1961. She was a fearless, funny, and beautiful Otoe, Missouria, and Choctaw woman. She was the epitome of small but mighty, a trailblazer and an unconquerable woman of faith. 
During her time here on earth, she wore many hats. She was a minister, singer, firefighter, security guard, aerobics instructor, manager, community health representative, and a vicious aggravation and scrabble player. But all these roles paled in comparison to the role that revealed her true purpose and bliss, grandmother. Anna Mae Morris was survived by and will be forever remembered by her children, Johnny J, Josh Helt, Elijah Helt, and Remy Helt, Martin Baca. Her best friend, John Helt, her siblings, Susan Ashtokobo, Michael Morris, Thomas McLaslin, and her down south family, the Wesleys, her nephews and nieces, Mike Ashtokobo, Tara, Rudy Ashtokobo, Susie, Alan D. Ashtokobo Jr., David Morris Jr., Kelsey, Janet Whiteman, Claudetta M. Buttery, and her Otoi friend, Tammy Fawfaw and family. Anna will forever be loved, missed, and fondly remembered by her true pride and joy, her grandchildren, Josh Helt, Thiago Gooby Helt, Lexi Baca, Emma Baca, Gracie Baca, McKaylin, and Michael Ashdecobo. She is also survived and loved by her extended family, friends, and tribal nations. She's preceded in death by her parents, the Reverend John and Claudette Morris, great-grandparents Johnny and Minnie Moore, brother David Morris, cousins Robert Gross Moore, Bruce Hess, brother-in-law, Alan Dale Ashtokobo Sr., and many beloved friends and family. A private service for immediate family was held on Wednesday, April 7, 2021 at 7 p.m. at the Otoy Baptist Church in Red Rock, Oklahoma. A traditional feast was held at noon on Thursday, April 8, 2021, and a private graveyard service was held for the family. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a professor of history and I've studied disasters for 20 years. I'm not a pandemic expert. I'm not a public health expert. I'm a researcher and a writer who's interested in the ways that history has shaped the disasters that we face around the world today. My idea for COVID calls is basically captured in the name. Whenever a disaster strikes, I have a habit of calling around. I call doctors and health experts, humanities and social science researchers like myself, planners and architects, emergency managers, elected officials, sometimes they answer, journalists, teachers, and artists. This time it seemed like if I was going to make my calls, I may as well see if anyone else was interested in jumping on and taking part. So, well, thank you for joining me. That introduction is what I said in the first COVID calls episode, March 16th, 2020, and I returned to it on the one-year anniversary of COVID calls. As I look back now, two years and a few days later, I see that I did not deviate too much in 500 episodes from the founding impulse. I did not, however, expect that I would still need to do these calls by the spring of 2022. Maybe that's a testament to how little I knew about the history of pandemics or how little I had actually thought about the ways that disasters compound and stretch out over time, how they distort time, how they make their own time. On that first day of COVID calls, March 16th, 2020, CBS News reported 88 deaths total in the United States due to COVID-19 and 7,100 deaths globally. Those numbers for the United States were probably too low even then, but the sense that something terrible was coming was pretty clear in that imbalance. As of that day, the United States was not yet fully ensnared by the pandemic. New York City had only announced its first death March 1st. 
The World Health Organization had only declared a pandemic a few days before on March 11, 2020. Most of us had left work and school right around then. Those who could leave and didn't fall into the essential worker classification, having been told we'd be back in two weeks. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said that they were told they would be back in just two weeks. It was sort of a refrain that we all heard and that maybe we all repeated in that time, not necessarily because we believed it, but maybe it gave us some confidence that our world wasn't going to change as much as it actually has. In 2021, as I reflected back on my first year in the pandemic, I remembered that I had lots of things on my calendar for April and May of 2020. Then I had summer research planned for Canada, Korea, and Japan. I was planning to take students and my family to the Paralympics. I was also planning with my friend and colleague Chuck Strozier to host a disaster school in New York City, leading up to the 20th anniversary of September 11th. None of that happened. What happened was we stayed home, those of us who could, for months in a massive collective action that saved lives and then that unraveled in the United States. And then came the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the protests and the economic crisis and on and on and on. And that only takes us to June of 2020. Now I look back after two years, having finished my first full year as a graduate as a faculty member of the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, KAIST. In this past year, and that's right, I moved here with my family uh, to Korea in the middle of a pandemic. In this past year, we've seen the global deployment of new vaccines to fight a new virus. We've seen the unevenness of that deployment, the backlash against it the formation of a politics of denial fed by disinformation and grifters. We had a season of relief in North America and then a global wave of variants, Delta, Omicron, and more on the way. The discovery of long COVID, the merger of a pandemic with a major war in Europe. The pandemic continues to affect new populations, unite some people in solidarity and bring others to protest face masks. It's a very odd timeline. Even as I record this episode, South Korea is facing the absolute worst moment of the pandemic, almost 27 months in. I want to say some things about what it was I thought I was doing when I started COVID calls two years ago and how the project has evolved over this time. And as I start to do that, I want to take a moment here to express the overriding emotion I felt throughout the months in doing this project, even more than sadness, which we've all had plenty of. And of course, anger. Anger at those who've taken advantage of the situation, the liars and grifters and the disinformation warriors. Anger at just plain human cruelty. But more than those emotions, I've felt gratitude. I knew with COVID calls that every day I would talk to an expert who cared, who had a depth of knowledge to contribute towards solutions. At a totally personal level, I like talking to experts. It gives me comfort. I was grateful, and I remain so, to the generosity of almost now a thousand guests on COVID calls. I want to thank my wife and my two sons. Early in the pandemic, when our home, like your home probably, was a life raft of sorts, when everyone went to different spaces to work and study throughout the day, 
And we had our ping pong table set up in the garage and we would run outside for blissful ping pong matches. And I can still hear the sound of that ping pong ball outside. It was my call to leave the desk, take a moment of fresh air. COVID calls was important at those times. It served as a focal point to the day. My son, Gabriel, was my production manager in those early days. And the calls played in the house as it got closer to dinner time. He sat next to me, monitoring the comments and researching new episodes and checking the sound levels. After dinner, I do the preliminary work of posting the episodes, sending them off to Bucky Stanton, who then worked his magic, and promoting them on social media. I think of the late evening hours when my kids went to sleep and the work of scheduling for the next day took me sometimes late into the night as I read voraciously about COVID. It was a daily practice. It was a rhythm in a chaotic time. It was my journal of plague years. I took comfort in COVID calls. My extended family has been stupendously supportive and you will find many of them in the collection of the calls. I've had two calls with my brothers and sisters. I've had calls with my parents, with my mother-in-law, and with many of my friends as well. And I have to say that throughout this entire experience, I've received more text messages, emails, phone calls, simple gestures of encouragement, and constantly people asking in a, in a well-meaning way, how long are you gonna keep doing this? And when I said, I don't see an end in sight, I always received encouragement to keep going. Episode number 487 is a discussion with the COVID Calls team. I hope you'll listen to it. It includes Bucky Stanton, who from very early on encouraged me, talked to me about technical options of producing a podcast, realized I had no idea what he was talking about when he described technical options, discussed them with me some more, and ultimately took on the role as the sound producer for the audio podcast of COVID Calls. Shivani Patel, who joined the team in the summer of 2020 and has stayed with the project ever since then. Shivani has done important research to schedule new calls. She's done her own programming. She's served as a co-host. Shivani is the person, if you've been a guest on COVID calls, from whom you receive the invitation, she receives a much higher acceptance rate than I do. She took on the task of inviting every single member of the United States Congress to COVID calls. That's right. And we've had a few of them on, and quite a few more of them didn't say no and didn't say yes. We'll be coming back to you in the future. She invited Werner Herzog and got one of the funniest responses, which maybe I'll talk about some other time. She invited David Lynch. She's invited Tony Fauci, I think five or six times, Michelle Obama. Shivani doesn't take no for an answer. She just writes back and says, we'll check back with you in a few months when you have a little more time. And then Eleanor Mays, who joined the team in the spring of 2021, when we were talking about making a digital archive. By that point, we had decided the project had gone long enough that we should put all of the calls in one place. I thought it would be a project of a summer. Eleanor worked on it over the summer, over the fall, over the winter. And now as we turn into the spring, she and the rest of the team are just about done with it and it should launch literally almost momentarily. Hyuna Kyum is another core member of the team. Hyuna appears in episode number 498. She has two special roles to play. She's been on the COVID calls team. She's also one of the graduate students at KAIST, and so she appeared in the graduate student episode. 
Then there are the many others who gave of their time and creativity once we decided to make a digital archive for COVID calls. I'm gonna read their names now. Megan Charlton, Irene Conforti, Easton Cueva, Esther Avusa, Cora Fortune, Alex Janya, Kartik Joshi, Kiona Kume, Sasha Kramer, Leanne Liu, Eleanor Mays, Olivia Noble, Emma Oketch, Shivani Patel, Kevin Ritter, Nicole Schroeder, Kato Shelady, Spencer Shore, Jaspal Singh, Bucky Stanton, Tracy Suits, Richard Sung, Matthias Wasanga. And if we left anybody out, my great apologies. Thank you all. Really, thank you for the work that you've done on COVID calls. You may have surmised from the size of this group, the scale of the undertaking. There will be more to say next week in a special episode number 501, when I introduce you to the digital archive and I'm actually gonna give a tour of it. But for now, let me tell you, it has every episode, audio, video, transcript with additional writings, artwork and materials for teaching. I want to thank the institutions that have offered resources and money and in publicity for the work, Drexel University, Villanova University, KAIST, American Scientist, History Now, and Philadelphia Magazine. We are actively raising funds now through a GoFundMe, easy to find if you just go to GoFundMe and look for COVID calls. This funding will allow research fellows to get to work immediately in the collection. Please consider contributing if you like COVID calls. Okay, so let me return to the ideas behind COVID calls. The initial idea came to me actually in 2017, if you can believe that, during Hurricane Harvey. Watching that disaster unfold in a terrible season of hurricanes and then visiting Port Aransas and seeing the damage. My parents were living in Port Aransas, Texas at that time. In fact, Hurricane Harvey made landfall one mile from their home. It was their retirement home. My mother had always wanted to live at the beach. My stepfather always had his reservations about living in places where hurricanes might hit. They had lived there only six months when Hurricane Harvey flooded their home. 10 feet of the ocean came up their street. I still shudder when I think about that. They were not there. They had evacuated. They had the resources to do so in San Antonio, but the months that followed were excruciating. And ultimately, they decided not to return to Port Aransas and relocated in San Antonio. I made a visit after that hurricane with my colleague, anthropologist Kim Fortune, from whom I've learned so much, is a tremendous mentor of mine and a huge supporter of COVID calls. And we went around the area with my parents. We met many people, including the mayor of Port Aransas. We had extraordinary interviews and discussions. And I remember thinking at that time, as the holidays came, that I really wished I had put those conversations up online. And then, in fact, I had done interviews with people who were involved with trying to understand Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria as well. I wish I'd made those part of the record because it was such a, a season of disaster. And I had that idea in mind that there was a real role to play, not just to collect the data, but to make the data available for journalists and other researchers. Social media was alive in that season of disasters, that season of Irma and Maria and Harvey, but it was too ephemeral. Great ideas were threaded and lost. 
So that was one idea. An earlier idea, an old idea actually, is the first wave of disaster reporting followed by disaster scholarship more generally. And we can see that going back into the 19th century if you're a historian of disasters. I'm a slow disaster researcher. That is to say, I look for the slow impacts of disaster over time. Those early in the middle of things reports, news reports, journal entries, first takes by accomplished historians in many cases who are willing to write an account of a disaster in the middle of things or just after, they're incredibly valuable. They're gold. I didn't forget that I was influenced by also a special series of essays on Hurricane Katrina sponsored by the Social Science Research Council to whom I also want to give great thanks for support for COVID calls. And if you know this package of essays, it was published not long after Hurricane Katrina and it had a mixture of very well-established researchers and very young career researchers from many, many different subfields and disciplines in the social sciences and humanities. It's a tremendous volume. It's given rise to an entire shelf of monographs, but having those essays available, available digitally to teach, to share, to extract from, to use in conversation and in journalism was incredibly impactful on me, but I didn't realize how much so until COVID started to unfold. And I should also say, I've had the chance now to co-curate another one of these SSRC essay series, the Disaster Studies series, which I've done with my co-curator, Alexa Dietrich, and also had a chance to host Alondra Nelson, who at that time was the president of the SSRC. What a dream to get to work with SSRC. Thank you to them. So I had these ideas in my head, the need to blur the lines between the research product and the field notes turning the interviews into a meso-level product. This is important for several reasons. It captures details you will forget or shave away later as you make more formal academic products, if you're an academic like me. It opens up the space for many more voices in the sense-making of the disaster. It allows for an iterative process, always appropriate, but especially so in a disaster with the temporal weirdness of this pandemic. It creates a venue for journalists to find researchers and vice versa. And it creates a space for trial and error, getting wildly divergent perspectives together, working within, across, and outside of disciplines. That's what COVID calls set out to do. Although I don't think I realized maybe all of that at the beginning, within a few weeks, I started to see the possibility that interviewing people in real time about a disaster was both an act of research and also an act of preliminary publication and could indeed potentially be an act of community building. I'm happy with this iteration. And as I go back to the spring of 2020, I'm so glad we pursued this approach with a creeping endemicity on the lips of policymakers now and a downplaying of the scale of this disaster. We need to remember the surprise, the fear, and the vast inequities of that early disaster phase. It's already being memory hold all over the world. Once I realized I wasn't stopping in the summer of 2020 with the project, then new dimensions opened up. So I've used it as a way also to do longitudinal work with guests returning one, two, sometimes as many as five times to try and also get beyond my North American centric view, which of course is a reflection of where I was born, where I was raised, where I went to school and where I built my academic networks. Even though I'm in South Korea now, I'm finding out how long it takes to build a network 
And so most of the calls are still North America based. It's also an attempt to try and get beyond that view and bring in new researchers into the conversation. Also talking in detail about teaching with K through 12 teachers, university teachers, and also teachers in informal settings, and to create a space where artists could present new work. That didn't come to me till a little bit later. And to invite guests like policymakers, I told you about that with Shivani, who were and are actively shaping the political context of the pandemic. These were not my early intentions. These were evolutions over time. I found guests through my network first. I invited every disaster researcher who I thought would have something to say about COVID. And that's, of course, very subjective because there's many more disaster researchers than I ever could have talked to. So I invited the ones whose work I knew the best or who I already personally knew. In order to put together a guest list in those first two or three weeks, I relied on people who I was pretty sure were going to say yes. Then through extensive reading in media and the expert literature, I branched out. I used social media. I used suggestions given to me by others. It was sort of a set of concentric circles going out, my closest network, and then the extended network, sometimes just yelling out into the internet. I sent out a lot of tweets that said, if you know something about this topic, please get in touch and you'd be surprised how many brilliant people I've met that way. It's not always terrible out there. Eventually, I invited those closest to me, which may seem counterintuitive, but it didn't occur to me until quite a bit later in the project that it might be worthwhile to talk on COVID calls to members of my own family and my friends. Let me say a little bit about the methodology. I'm trained as a historian. I'm happy in the archives. I once read a 40-year run of fire insurance journals, and I think of that as one of the very most, the happiest times in my life. But I also value conversation as a way to discover research and especially to draw connections between past and present. Studying contemporary disasters allows me to see the past differently, just as the historical accumulation of disaster knowledge or inequality of trauma, that all bears on the disaster we live in now. It's an inheritance. This talking, this talking method might also be my Southern heritage the education given by my grandparents who told the world, told about their world through stories. These are the traditions of my family. As I often have said, you don't necessarily know someone from the South or like Texas, like myself, because of their accent. You know them by the length of the story. It means the conversation was always going to be the core of this project. It started as a webinar on Zoom. That was complicated because it meant managing a group of guests taking live questions. I, I enjoyed that and that was fun, but it also made it hard to stream it out to social media. Of course, Zoom was changing in the products that it made available in that time. I also had the idea that I would pretty quickly transition to making a produced podcast. What do I mean by that? My idea is that I would actually do COVID calls, but I would do them privately. I would do them as I had always done, just calls with researchers, experts, people I wanted to talk to, I would record those bits and then edit it all together with a script, which was deeply historically researched and produce it as a podcast, something you might hear uh, on NPR, something you might hear uh, like Science Friday, something with produced elements and live elements. And I set out to do that. I couldn't do that and also keep up with the intense flood of information that was coming every single day, even waiting a week 
to produce a podcast at that point seemed to me impossible, irrational. So I tried to do both and I failed. What I was able to keep doing was the daily calls. I still have the idea of the produced podcast and you may see that in the future, but I couldn't do both. Pretty early on after the first six weeks or so, I also settled on the idea of reading the daily numbers from the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. And pretty early on, I also knew that those numbers were inadequate to helping people sort of realize the disaster in its totality. So I picked up on a conversation that I had with disaster sociologist Lori Peake, who suggested reading obituaries, personal stories. And so I've done that ever since. And in fact, the obituaries, which I read at the top of the episode, they provide us with a life story, with information that we need to try to make sense of the topic of the day. I always tried to pair the topic of the obituary with the topic of the day. And I also found that guests really reacted to the obituaries, that it became a common point that we could talk about, and we often did throughout the episode. I decided in the winter of 2021 that we should do the digital archive, and that also meant producing the transcripts. Producing the transcript had been done haphazardly from the beginning, and by the end of 2020 and early 2021, that actually turned into the major work that the long the team members, long list that I read you, they've been involved with. We produced the transcripts using AI, but then you have to go back laboriously and listen to the calls and check them against the transcript. The transcribers, the checkers, and also those who have helped produce the descriptions for COVID calls have put in hours and hours and we've had team meetings, wonderful meetings, where they've shared their experiences of listening to the calls, in many cases, going off in their own directions to do their own research based on what they heard in the calls and sharing ideas with me, which I have gladly brought back into the heart and soul of COVID calls and the topics that we have produced. So there has been uh, some community building in this, a community of researchers that's worked on the calls. The transcripts to this point run to 5 million words. I don't know what else to say about that, except that there's a lot in the collection. There have been multiple endpoints for COVID calls. At first, I thought I would end after three months. Like I said, that's what I had in my mind from the fall of 2017. And that would have taken me into just about the, just a little after the time that George Floyd was murdered. It was obvious that we couldn't stop COVID calls at that point. And then there was the return to school in the fall of 2020. And then there was the drive toward the vaccination election. And then people getting vaccinated in early 2021. And then I moved to Korea. And there was an ambition to try to internationalize the calls, which we've had some success with. Then let's have guest hosts. And as we got into the summer of 2021, the Delta variant and then the Omicron variant, you understand it's been multiple disasters. It's been multiple pandemics. And even now, the fact that we've reached 500 episodes is not the end point. This is not the end of COVID calls. It's going to evolve into a different form, but I don't see any way that we can stop doing it. And in fact, as I've said to many people, and sometimes when I say this, they, they definitely look at me like um, they're worried about me, but I think this is important to think. Imagine if we had started a COVID calls after Hurricane Katrina, if one of the researchers close to that disaster had started there and kept that collection going all the way to now, or with September 11, or any of the many disasters, go back as far as you want. 
imagine if we had a run of calls understanding the disaster as time passes through it and beyond it. I'm not saying how long I'm going to keep doing COVID calls, but I have no plan to stop anytime soon. Let me add this. In addition to listening, I wanted to say something. I wanted, and I do want, history to be a more activist discipline. I'm in the opinion box here. Not everyone agrees with this, but I believe there's a power for change. There's a power for good locked up in the accumulated works of disaster history, and too much of it goes to waste. Activism takes many forms. Teaching and discussion are powerful forms of action, especially when the topic is injustice, racism, ableism, ageism, the history of disaster, slow disaster, the accumulation of trauma over time. These things are activist histories, especially when history shows that different outcomes for this pandemic have been possible. When we can draw from history lessons to chart a just recovery from this disaster, history becomes activism. It should be. Let me add some additional context here. I've been able to take some professional risks. I'm white, I'm male. I've always lived in wealthy countries and I've always worked in well-funded institutions. I have tenure. I've always been encouraged by my mentors to think broadly, to build networks and to work creatively. This is the first time in my career I've ever even come close to taking up those challenges and my ability to do so to the small extent that I think I've been able to do that has a lot to do with my role as a privileged member of society and of the academy. Having said all of this, I also want to make it clear that I think the historical profession is too conservative in method and in its orientation towards justice. And in my very, very limited way, I've wanted COVID calls to serve as a platform for researchers to step into the moment, talk about their values, and inspire others with the depth of knowledge that they possess. Their work needs to go out into the world. It should. I have not platformed this information on COVID calls. We've had this discussion with the team. We did invite uh, every member of Congress, as I said. We invited Republicans, same as Democrats. Um, and I have invited conservative uh, guests to be on COVID calls. Olivia Troy is one of the most fantastic guests we have. She was a member of um, Vice President Pence's task force, COVID task force. She's still very active in Republican politics. It's not Trumpist Republicanism. She came on COVID calls. She's been on COVID calls more than once. She's a contributor. And so, but I did make the decision. I was not going to use this as a platform to offer uh, both sides, both sidesism of the pandemic. When the science is clear and when the clarity of the science saves lives and when making the science murky costs lives, I wasn't going to participate that. Instead, I've used it, as, used it as a platform to debunk disinformation. And there are some brilliant debunkers of disinformation out there. Kate Starbird has been a tremendous guest and friend of COVID calls. But this has been hard and it's been personal. There are members of my family who are anti-vax, who have not been vaccinated. I would have liked to have had them on COVID calls, but I couldn't offer up the platform. It has also served as a place to shine light on archival efforts. And some of my favorite discussions have been with librarians and archivists. 
And you would be surprised, maybe you won't be, how many archival efforts there are springing up with COVID. Some of them precede COVID and they've taken up new energy with collecting around COVID. Some of them are very ephemeral. They were a class project in a university class or a high school class. Some of them, like mine, started with the ambition of lasting a couple of months and have lasted quite a bit longer. There are a lot of people out there collecting information about COVID. There's a lot of innovation in the archival space. I should add, younger researchers fundamentally understand the potential of history, the potential of the social sciences, the potential of the archives, and have pushed me further and further to make a more inclusive project. Even scholars with precarity in their work lives have pushed me with this. I really thank them. We need more jobs for them. We need more venues for them. We need more ways to apply their genius to the manifold problems this disaster presents. Every tenured faculty member in the United States and abroad should be thinking constantly about making opportunities for precarious members of the profession. This project started without any intention of going on this long. As I said, though if I had known March 16th, 2020, that I would go this long, I don't think I'd have changed the format. I think this was always going to be a project that starts from my perspective as a disaster researcher, trying to bring historical context to bear on disasters, to bear on disasters happening to us now in an effort to increase understanding and reduce suffering in whatever way this kind of work can accomplish that goal. I've consulted with fellow researchers throughout the project and gathered ideas from every corner. But in the end, the scope of the COVID calls, the guests, the themes, the questions, these are a reflection overwhelmingly of my perspective. I've tried to balance out this Knowles worldview by including guest hosts and co-hosts, by reading as widely as possible to find guests I might not have found in more ordinary times, and by listening closely to ideas offered by friends, family, colleagues, and even random people kind enough to make suggestions. You'd be surprised, as I said, sometimes good things come from a call out into the internet. Guest hosts are tremendous people. Felicia Henry, Adia Benton, Jacob Steer-Williams, Esther Chernak, Kim Fortune, Kristen Arkiza, Shivani Patel, Eleanor Mays. And having them saved viewers from having to see me in every episode. Guest hosts develop their own ideas, their own guest lists. And so it's possible to experience COVID calls without having to look at me if you seek out those episodes, and I hope you will. Now, since for many people, this will be the very first COVID calls episode you watch, listen to, or read. See, I'm thinking about people using the collection in the future now. I want to now give you a tour of the collection. I want to discuss with you three different ways that the COVID calls took shape over the past two years. I've struggled to find ways to describe COVID calls, and even here, my categories are incomplete. Just one attempt to group and explain the experience of talking with hundreds of guests coming from all walks of life in the midst of the worst pandemic in a century, the most profound and far-reaching new disaster of our lifetimes. When the digital archive launches, you will see we have two dozen categories with which to organize the calls, and even that doesn't do justice to the complexity of the collection. Only in time when people use the archive, and we have some distance from it, may we be able to see more clearly the key themes that emerge. But for now, here's how I want to organize my discussion for the rest of my time with you in episode 500. I'm going to introduce you to episodes with disaster researchers in one grouping. A second grouping, I'm going to introduce episodes with people who do not identify as disaster researchers. You might call these 
primary source episodes. And thirdly, episodes that cultivate community memorial and action. I'm going to show a few clips with each. Um, this is a time when I'm going to be uh, having to go back and forth between a few clips. I think we can do it relatively seamlessly on StreamYard. Thanks in advance for bearing with me, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation that these clips provide. First is a space for disaster researchers. This is how we started with COVID calls, but I mean this very broadly. I have a big tent for disaster research. These are people in and out of academic settings, including government and NGOs and journalists, activists, people who've done extensive research in whatever medium and technique they use to situate disasters historically and in social contexts. The first clip I'm going to show comes from April 9th, 2020. This is episode 19. This is my discussion with Lori Peake, the director of the Natural Hazard Center of the University of Colorado Boulder. Thank you for walking us through those different data sources. I think that's really um, that's really important and encouraging, and also sort of speaks again to the to the importance of having um, some awareness of how these studies have been done in the past, so we don't feel like we're having to just start over again. So I, I want to ask you a connected question with that because I feel like sometimes. Not that social psychology and history are at odds, but I sometimes wonder how they work together. So when we talk about how humans do things, you know, one way to talk about this backlash issue um, and this stigma issue is that's just what human beings do when they feel threatened. And, and I see those kinds of, um, you know, discussions out there. And so it may be normal to expect that in a pandemic, and we can go back in history and say that there there's a sort of a normal social functioning of finding an outsider, an outside agent in which to focus blame. And that that even can be some sort of a form of social cohesion is finding an outsider to blame. Okay, I'll put the pin in that. But on the other side, I mean, as a historian, I just feel like these contexts really matter too. I mean, the anti-Muslim, you know, the context of anti-Muslim hate in America, it existed before 9-11. Um, and, you know, the fact that the president of the United States, and not only the president of the United States, um, used language like the Wuhan virus, the Chinese virus, very clearly framing it as, as some sort of a, a pandemic that had to do with an external force, unwanted, coming into this, coming into this country. But of course, Donald Trump didn't create anti-Chinese sentiment in America. I mean, the 19th and early 20th century are full of anti-Asian laws, anti-Asian Jim Crow as well as Japanese internment in the 1940s. So, I mean, it's a long-standing sort of cultural note that's in American life. It's almost an impossible question to put to you, but I want to know how you think about it a little bit. Are we talking about human brains here, or are we talking about sort of the maintenance of long-term social context? Mm. Uh, well, Scott, this is why these sorts of cross-disciplinary collaborations are so important, because I think it's both and that um as you just noted that we those of us who are focused on sort of what what is the social context right now um and historians help us to understand how we got to this point where we are we we need both of us working together and what you're saying about how much the context matters so in my um in behind the backlash i offer this model to try to help explain 
when we are most likely to see backlash violence in the aftermath of a disaster. Mm. Because interestingly, blame and scapegoating have received relatively little attention in the broader disaster literature, Mm. um, except for in sort of very specific disaster events and so forth. And so blame and scapegoating, I think, are sort of understudied, under theorized. And so one of the things that I did in the book was I, I have this model of backlash violence in the first characteristic in the model is related to understanding the pre-existing context, that you're absolutely right that anti-Muslim sentiment after 9-11 did not just come out of nowhere. It didn't happen when those towers, it didn't, it wasn't generated from the towers falling. It was already existing. The same thing with the uh, anti-Asian and anti-Chinese sentiment that we're seeing right now. This did not come out of nowhere. It's been sort of a long standing pattern, as you suggested. And for those reasons, I always try to be really careful with the use of the word unprecedented, Mm. because it is true that after 9-11, for example, that spike, how big the spike was after 9-11 in backlash violence, that was unprecedented in terms of how large and how dramatic the spike was. But it was not unprecedented in terms of we saw similar spikes in backlash violence after the Oklahoma City bombings, when Arabs and Muslims were wrongly accused of committing bombings, which were later revealed to be committed by two white men. We saw them after the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. There's just exactly what you're saying that these, again, when we see these incidents of dramatic blame and scapegoating, there is oftentimes this long-standing pre-existing context that is informing what then plays out in the in the moment of disaster. I want to remind people that my guest today is Lori Peake from the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado. And please do get your questions into the YouTube live chat. We can take those questions as we go. And then also there been a couple of tweets just um, saying how much they were enjoying the conversation, but also please get questions in on Twitter. Okay, so um, let me turn, let's just stay in this vein a little bit and sort of talking a, a bit about your previous work, but I want to talk now about Hurricane Katrina because I know that's been a really sort of dominant subject in your, in your research. And, you know, Children of Katrina, um, this is a book that focuses on displacement. Um, and... In this context, low-income African-Americans, women, um, have been the focus of much of, of that work. And, you know, now we're seeing um, some news, some really terrible news emerging about the loss of life in African-American communities in the United States because of COVID-19, communities of color, Latino communities. And the, the, so this pattern, you know, early on, it was a little confounding because it seemed like it was the wealthiest in America, the most powerful that were um, being struck. Now it turns out maybe they were just the only ones who could get tests. Um, and so we're reverting back to what has been an unfortunate but sort of normal pattern that disasters punch down. I've even been trying to think about this, you know, kind of mapping this onto this social science concept of intersectionality that people who face multiple different kinds of bias, um, you know, they have some compounded challenges that they have to deal with in society that, that bias isn't just one of one type. And if you're compounding disasters on top of that, you get this, I think, really, really, um, very difficult, um, set of challenges that these communities are facing. So given that reality and your own experience working closely with these communities over a long stretch of time, um, 
how have you thought about those injustices in the context of disaster? What can this research community, our research community, do to provide information, research that can help to, you know, bend the curve on that, on those kinds of injustices? Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for bringing this into the conversation, both inequality and intersectionality. Um, I just read today that uh, the state of Michigan, for example, 14% of the state of Michigan's population is African-American, but early numbers are suggesting that 40% of the deaths in, in Michigan are African-American. Uh, we're seeing reports from environmental frontline communities, uh, indigenous communities, African-American communities, Latinx communities that have long been environmental sacrifice zones and battlefronts in the environmental yeah. justice movement that we're seeing similar patterns where people are already suffering from the highly disparate rates of asthma and other forms of environmental health and environmental injustices we're seeing kinds of patterns emerge across the U.S. And Scott, you are absolutely right that one of the um, most enduring lessons of disaster is related to this issue with exposing and further opening up already existing fault lines. And so when the fault lines that run across our society are on the basis of race, gender, age, disability, yeah. our economic standing, when we already have major inequalities that exist as we do in this nation, that obviously affects populations' ability to prepare for these events, even when we see them coming, even when we know they're coming, it then leads to disproportionate impacts. So who suffers first and suffers most, who is most likely to die or to be injured in these events. These are the people that are already marginalized. And then when it comes to the recovery process, who struggles the most in the recovery and has the most protracted recovery experience. Um, this, this, again, there are, we could fill an entire library and entire libraries at the DRC, at the University of Delaware, and at our library at the Hazard Center are full of studies that, that show how pre-existing vulnerabilities play out across mm -hmm. the disaster life cycle. So I think that is one of the most clear and present areas of many areas where our scholarship in social sciences and disaster could really be further brought to bear in the response to this pandemic so these injustices don't get only further deepened and more people don't suffer even further. Okay, that was Lori Peak from very early in COVID calls. And as you can see there, um, Lori Peak, as I mentioned, is the director of the disaster of the Hazard Center, the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. And Lori has written about September 11 and about Hurricane Katrina, and she's a person I wanted to talk to to basically get the lay of the land as to how sociologists were thinking about COVID in the context of those of those disasters. I want to turn to a second clip now. I have received a little feedback. Some say that the audio is is going very well for them, and others say it's not going as well. My apologies um, if the audio is giving some trouble. Um, but also, you can find these episodes uh, on on your own and uh, check them out uh, uh, on your own. Um, so if, it, if the audio is giving you difficulty at this time, 
Um, I hope we can make that better for you. And I'm going to shift over now to a second clip, and this one is much more recent, and it gives us a sense a little bit of the span of time. And um, this is a group of researchers who are near and dear to COVID calls, and I will now bring them up. All right, so this clip I'm going to show now is episode number 406. This is from February 2nd of this year. And this is Jacob Steer Williams as a co-host with historian Monica Green, anthropologist Cecilia Tamori, and epidemiologist Eleanor Murray. And what you're seeing here is one of the things we really tried to do with COVID calls is to bring experts into dialogue, into conversation, where they could focus on a central issue, but bring their own disciplinary practices to bear. In this case, also to bear on an issue that was ripped from the headlines at that time and still now which is this rush to normalize or move to endemicity with the pandemic. So I'm gonna play a clip now from this episode about the end of the pandemic. And, and can you start us off with, with the present? And what I mean by that is what, when epidemiologists use the term endemic, what do they mean today? Because so much of our conversation um, to come today is how, how much misunderstanding there is around the word endemic and, and how it's being misused and how it's changed over time. So Ellie, let's start with you. How, how do epidemiologists use this term? Yeah, so I think that this is in some ways part of the confusion because there's not necessarily one single definition even within epidemiology. Um, but the definitions that exist are, are sort of relatively in the same space. So there's sort of um, conceptual definition of a disease that is occurring in a specific area in a predictable way over time. Um, and so that sort of, um, const, you know, so somewhat static, somewhat constant level of disease burden is often what we're talking about when we talk about endemic. But that doesn't necessarily mean actually constant because we can have seasonal fluctuations there. So um, when we're thinking about, you know, specifically trying to quantify, is this disease endemic or not? Then we have this mathematical definition, which is also not entirely, um, you know, clearly defined because it's basically over some unspecified long period of time, the average number of new cases from each infected individual um, comes to, come, comes out to one. But how long that should be um, is not really clearly specified. If it's a disease that doesn't have a seasonal pattern, then you might say, okay, a year or even six months. But, you know, when we look at the flu, it's not clear that that's really averaging one <laughs> in a 12-month period. So even there with that more sort of specific quantifiable definition, there's some vagueness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm. Um, so I, I've been trying to record. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, recent uses of this term, and in in the middle of January, so the 17th through the 21st, the World Economic Forum's Davos agenda um, included a forum on this topic. And Anthony Fauci said said that he was cautiously he was asked this if COVID is already endemic or if it's becoming endemic, and he said one that he was cautiously optimistic, but he said. And this is the end of this quote. That's my definition of what endemicity would mean, a non-disruptive presence without elimination. So not getting rid of COVID-19, not eliminating it, but it not being disruptive. And that's so fascinating to me to think about how how endemicity is tied to this word disruptive, especially in this moment where like I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, where in, in my state, our case positivity rate was 33% today. Wow. Cecilia, you want to jump in with this definition of, of endemicity and, and add to it? 
I mean, I think, you know, Ellie's covered the, you know, the epidemiological perspective, but I think what I've been watching is how these terms are being hijacked. And so, um, from, you know, to give you a little context for that. So, uh, part of this is just, you know, work that I had been doing on commercial determinants of health and, and influence of, uh, corporate interests in health. And I, there's a wealth of literature on this across different domains, unfortunately. And so my work, you know, started in, in breastfeeding, but I started working on other areas and started, you know, mastering that literature over time because it was part of a pattern from tobacco to opioids to climate to alcohol, you know, really you can pick whatever domain. And I, you know, I would go from different meetings because I'm on different kinds of projects and, and the meeting would sound sort of the same, except we would plug in a different word. And that is actually a frightening place to be. And so when I started watching the discourse around COVID, the endemic discussion fit into a much larger pattern that started two years ago. And the first of those terms that got hijacked was probably something around infection fatality rate and case fatality rate. But shortly after that, you know, followed by the big one, which was herd immunity. And herd immunity started getting hijacked almost immediately and misused to argue that what we really needed was, was no mitigation strategies at all. Because actually, herd immunity would be something beneficial so if we would just allow the virus to spread, then everybody would attain herd immunity and we would come out magically on the other end. And of course, erasing any part of the, you know, the people who might die in the, the process and, and, you know, whose lives actually uh, were valued or not. So that was the first one that was that hit on a much larger scale in the public as well. And then there were several others. And I think endemicity has joined that rather uh, illustrious and very uh, unpleasant group of terms that are not about the actual scientific construct at all, but about what they are being used to do and what they are being used to accomplish, which is essentially we do not need any mitigation measures because here we are. And the city is great. And you probably have noticed there's a couple of articles that explicitly make that argument where they link it to the end of the pandemic. Endemicity, uh. endemic, is this the end of the pandemic? I believe that was in the BBC. So I think that is really what we're, that's what I think we're really talking about here. And could I just uh, jump in and add, I think, uh, Cecilia is very right that this is sort of part of the way herd immunity and endemic, they're being misused in the same way. And I think one of the key features that people are misusing is the idea that both, you know, they're, they're talking about herd immunity and endemic both as points that you reach and then you remain in that state. Whereas really in a trajectory of a disease over time, that can just as describe an instant and you can like, come in and out of those different states. And I think that that is completely gone from the conversation around the way people are talking about it. Monica, let's bring you in and comment on anything that uh, Ellie or Cecilia have said. And then let's, let's also talk about sort of laying some historical groundwork for this, you know, disease 
in the past becoming endemic and what are the social factors that have caused that? Well, the um, big thing that has been important for me getting in dialogue with the public health people is we have yet to pin down when the, this new um, epidemiological and mathematical definition of, of endemicity um, uh, occurred. And I think that's a big void in the, the public conversation um, right now is most people, um, uh, as, as Ellie has said, do not understand the, the, um, either the common use of the term or the, the, the very particular use of the term. And the use of the term is, um, I've actually done some historical digging, um, uh, the last few days. I suspect that the word, um, has an, an earlier origin, but in English, I was able to trace it back to 1662. And, um, and, and then the, the usage is consistent, uh, uh, for the next several centuries up until the 20th century, which is that endemic is a geographical location. Um, it's a, it uh, indicates that this is a disease that is characteristic of a certain region. And so this builds on a very ancient notion that we see in the Hippocratic uh, text, Airs, Waters, Places, where itinerant um, practitioners would go around different places around the Mediterranean and say, okay, in this place, people tend to have this disease. And in this place, people have uh, tend to have this disease. And so when the word endemic is being used, it's to talk about this same um, phenomenon. So one of the examples that that, uh, many people will probably recognize is goiter. So um, goiter, as we understand now, is a deficiency of iodine in the diet. And um, one of the earliest French dictionaries, medical dictionaries, that I looked at today said, Oh yes, and and the people in this canton in Switzerland typically have goiter, and we would say, okay, there's um, a, a group of people that are distant from the ocean and do not regularly have fish in their diet and aren't getting enough iodine. So that's the way endemic has always been used. The situation right now is we're talking about a global disease. We're talking about Omicron that moved around the entire world, and we're still trying to figure out the timeline of it, but it moved around the entire world basically in about a month's time. So what does a geographic delimiter um, in that traditional sense, how does that apply to a global population where there is never a cessation of transmission? And the other thing to point out about with the goiter um, example is that endemic can be used um, for uh, nutritional um, conditions not simply infectious diseases. Um, so it has a much wider range um, in, in that traditional usage. And um, yeah, uh, so, so we really need a lot, of, lot more clarity. It's being used very um, uh, just in, 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 uh, inappropriately. I mean, if I could just push that a little bit more, Monica, thank you for that. It's being used politically. Okay, so that's a um, clip from what to me was an astoundingly rich conversation with Jacob Steer-Williams, Monica Green, Cecilia Tamori, and Eleanor Murray. I think I've solved my sound issues. I'm sorry, I had to turn it down a little bit there. And and when I show YouTube clips, I'll do my best to intercept the ads. 
Um, this is the way that uh, 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 a podcast like this produced by one person in real time, as good as StreamYard is. This has been one of the aspects of, of this. Actually, I just take a sidebar here um, and have been asked a few times also um, about editing things out. And I, I, I don't um, because as a historian, when I watch or listen to old broadcasts or when I look at old drafts of things, I love it when there's errors and mistakes in there. Those are indicators of the time. It's when people apologize with, if dogs or children come into the room. To me, that adds text, uh, context and, and atmosphere. But I don't want to uh, I want you to be able to hear it. So it might just turn it down a little bit. I think that's helping with the sound issues. And I want to emphasize something about that conversation. Um, as you saw there, we talked about epidemiological findings in real time. The uh, immediate real-time history of the Omicron, Omicron variant. And then we took a, a, a time machine trip back to the 17th century with one of my favorite and most brilliant guests, Monica Green. And um, in, in an episode like that, I really felt like um, I was really trying, I was curating something uh, not, and I'm not expert in any of those areas, but I was able to locate people who um, I thought could clearly communicate and have a good dialogue with each other. And Jacob Steer Williams co-hosted that one as a historian of medicine. He had an enormous contribution. The other thing I want to ma make a point there is that if you're an academic, you know that a conversation like that, you might get to see once a year, if you're lucky, at a conference. And so one of the oddities of this time has been for those who could make the turn to the digital. And many people jumped into that and others were forced into that with our teaching, with our work, with our socializing. But I was able to pull that call together with someone in South Carolina, Massachusetts, Maryland, and California, and I'm in South Korea. We met each other two minutes before the call. We had the call, we had a nice discussion after, and that was the end of it. And that's one of the things that the social media is making possible with the real-time collection of disaster archives. Okay, I'm going to show one more clip in this first category that I was talking about, the category of disaster researchers. And in this one, I'm going to introduce you to Rashawn Ray, who's a sociologist of race and racism, structural racism and policing at the University of Maryland and the Brookings Institution. This is a call from May 29th, 2020. I had talked to him just two weeks before about race and the pandemic, um, or just three weeks before about race and the pandemic. And then the murder of George Floyd happened and the Black Lives Matter protests started to take to the streets across America. And that's the context of this call. So this call, actually, if you take this with the earlier call and then my later calls with Rashawn Ray, this is one of those cases where longitudinal discussion was possible, where you're actually able to see the multiple disasters converging around something we call the pandemic, or as he called, um, as others have called a syndemic, or as he called the dual pandemics. It's um, a call that meant a lot to me because it also began to push the COVID calls in the direction of um, social justice and actually turning the platform over as often as possible to discussions, deep discussions of inequality and race. And those are topics we would have discussed anyway, but we probably would not have discussed them with the urgency that we did after that terrible spring of 2020. So let me turn now to discussion with Rashawn Ray. Uh, based on what she knows about how society reacts to our lives. Our last discussion, the Ahmad 
Arbery murder had just happened, and that wasn't that long ago. Um, and now we have this George Floyd murder. So, from your perspective, how are you? How are you describing? How are you making sense of what you're seeing in Minneapolis right now? I know it's a moving news uh, target, mm -hmm. but give me your take on on what we what we should be seeing right now. Yeah, I think it's a few main things for people to recognize. The first big thing is that in, in the incidents that I just noted, what happened with Christian Cooper in Central Park is part of a continuum of police violence that oftentimes ends up um, as the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And what I mean by that is what happened in Central Park is that Amy Cooper played what we call the, the damsel in distress racial trope which is older than the birth of a nation, the, the, the actual birth of our country, as well as the movie and the book. And what she knew was that her calling the police, acting as if Christian Cooper was a black man, graduate of Harvard, former editor at Marvel Studios, that her saying that he was threatening her, that he was physically hurting her, would prompt a response from the police that would lead to people being more likely to believe her. So she knew that believability and culpability were, were on her side. And people know that those type of incidents oftentimes start in ways that the George Floyd incident ends with. So it's important for people to realize this is a continuum that people see. Like the, the, the officer-involved killings that we highlight with George Floyd oftentimes start with the incidents we've seen in Central Park, and there are more of them. Second thing for people to recognize, with that being said, as bad as things feel right now with COVID-19, with these incidents laced and raced, with cities like Minneapolis burning, police precincts being burned to the ground. And, and I should note that on the ground, Minneapolis, and I've studied this with my colleague, uh, Dana, my colleagues Dana Fisher and Don Dow, that in Minneapolis, the crowd, if you look at it, was much more racially diverse than crowds that we've seen previously, whether that be anti-lockdown protests or whether that be um, marches and protests against police brutality. So people who were enacting property damage, because it's also important to know that no one really got hurt during these particular incidents. I mean, there was property damage, large scale property damage, but we didn't see anyone get hurt. So with that being said, the speed by which Minneapolis fired those four police officers and brought charges to the officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck is unprecedented. Five years ago, when Marilyn Mosby stood in Baltimore and charged the officers who were involved with the killing of Freddie Gray with um, criminal charges, that was unprecedented. We fast forward nearly five years today and we have it happening again as the officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck was charged with third degree murder. Final thing that's important for people to recognize is that officers being charged with police misconduct is very rare. Officers being convicted is even more rare. So what Minneapolis wanted to do, because they know with Philando Castile that the officer got off. There were, there were no convictions with Philando Castile, even though all of us seen what happened. So from the state level in Minnesota and all the way down to Minneapolis, they wanted to make sure that they had evidence that they could convict on, which is why I think that they came up with the charge of third degree murder rather than first or second degree murder. So you think that indicates that from that perspective, I mean, it, it seems fast, but it could have been faster. So there was some 
legal process going on of making sure, I mean, their strategy is really to get a conviction. Without a doubt. I mean, I think most district attorneys bring forth charges to, to, to aim, aiming to get a conviction. With that being said, though, um, sometimes there is some political posturing there that, OK, we're going to charge this person with first and second degree murder, knowing that it can't happen. And there are a couple of state um, statutes and laws that people should bear in mind. The first big one, and, and I'm unsure about Minnesota, but just across the board, across states, there are typically two main patterns. Either one with charges, there is a step down process. So you charge a person with first degree murder, you can actually reduce it down a second. There are other states that don't allow for that step down. So in other words, if you charge them for first degree murder or second degree murder, if it wasn't premeditated, then that means you, you don't have a step down. You can't go down to more charges. So they brought forth third degree murder and some an additional main charge. That's important for people to know because Minnesota is thinking about their state laws. The second thing that people have to bear in mind is that police officers are highly protected by the law and they are highly protected by the fraternal order of police. I think unions are great. But the fraternal order police oftentimes operates in a very different way than other unions. And so they have been able to implement policies and laws that allow for police officers, when they've been accused of police brutality and misconduct, to take time to actually review evidence, to come up with a written and verbal statement if they choose to do so, to hire an attorney. To, to essentially get all of their ducks in a row to decide if they're going to resign or wait it out. And that's why I think the speed by which they fired them is so key. Like that rarely ever happens. Typically, if an officer is going to get fired, the fraternal order of police is given a heads up and they tell that officer to resign. That allows for them to keep their pension intact. That mm -hmm. also allows for them to move on to another precinct oftentimes and get rehired. So we have to pay attention to these details that I think matter so much. Uh, thank you for bringing those really crucial contexts to understand sort of what's been happening very fast. And let's let's bring this in the context now of of this pandemic. So um, here we have a situation um, with maximum national distress, maximum urban distress and concern. I mean, people have been in lockdown. They've lost jobs. They have financial insecurity. All of the you know we couldn't imagine a worse time. And on Monday, we're talking about disasters that come together. The idea there was to talk about hurricanes and the pandemic. But, you know, I had this, it's occurred to me that we sh the one thing we could have counted on is that there would be an incident of racial violence amid the pandemic. And so we didn't need to look very far for that kind of compound disaster. What do you, the convergence of these two things, I mean, you're uniquely situated to think about them together. What is this revealing? You know, it's interesting. I think Don Lemon on CNN highlighted it very well. He said that we're dealing with two pandemics. We're dealing with COVID-19 and we're dealing with racism. And the way I've been describing it is that in the United States, we have a series of epidemics within the pandemic. But it could be argued that the most fundamental pandemic that the United States and the world, as we think about not just enslavement in the United States or in the Caribbean, but also colonization on the continent of Africa, that racism is the big pandemic that we have to deal with. And when we think about COVID-19, some of the disparities that exist in COVID-19, and we've talked about those, you've, you've highlighted those. I mean, the fact that Blacks represent about, uh, they're, they're about two or three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than whites. That statistic actually parallels the policing statistic. 
which is the fact that blacks are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking, nor when they have a weapon. Black teenagers are 21 times more likely than white teenagers to be killed by the police. A black person is killed every 40 hours by a law enforcement officer in the United States. And that comes up with one out of every 1,000 black people will die due to police violence. And I think as we think about the founding of our society and how people like to highlight the officers in Minneapolis as being bad apples. One thing I know from studying policing for a decade and studying health disparities is that bad apples come from rotten trees. And as much as we highlight the bad apples, they are coming from a system and an organization, a social institution in law enforcement that actually leads to the disparities that we see in the streets. And it's highly connected to studies that we've been seeing around social distancing laws that we talked about before when we talked about masks, that, that in, in New York, York about 80% of all the people stopped for social distancing violations that were Black or Latino. Like all of these were part of the same continuum. And what I hope we can do moving forward is to really reimagine a new America to live up to what many of us think that it feels like on a regular basis until we're reminded once again how inequitable our society actually is. That was Rashawn Ray, sociologist, and he was, uh, that was episode number 55 of COVID Calls, May 29th, 2020. That conversation had a profound impact on me. And as I shared earlier, I'm, I'm a big believer, I'm not so cynical to think that we can't still actually um, have our minds changed by a single conversation. And uh, I knew Rashawn's work some, and then I got to know it a lot better and uh, had a chance to do some writing with him since then and had him as a guest speaker at Drexel University. This was one of those calls that um, it, uh, changed my career, changed my life. Uh, I don't think I've told him that, but um, his clarity, his generosity, his total skill as a teacher coming through, as you can see in that call. And so uh, that was an important one. And that was the third one I wanted to show you in part of this category that we would consider disaster researchers. I, th I think um, these are kinds of experts that I would have looked for and would have imagined that I would want to talk to um, when I started COVID calls. That, as I said at the top, that's really what COVID calls started as. It was a forum um, as an extension of my research method to talk to experts out there in the field who could help me understand from their disciplinary perspectives what was going on in the disaster, what kind of evidence they were following, what stories they were tracking. I want to introduce a second category now. And this second category, um, I think it's one that by the summer of 2020, particularly after as the Black Lives Matter protests and movement was underway, as we started to see the pandemic uh, moving in waves, spreading out across the United States and around the world unevenly as inequalities were coming to the fore. Um, it occurred to me that we probably should take the opportunity to interview non-researchers as well, which is to say the historical record was literally unfolding so quickly. It was impossible to keep up with the news so why not use COVID calls also as a forum 
very much the way that you might um, imagine uh, an extension of a journalistic uh, endeavor. Um, although I'm not a professional journalist, uh, I still saw that as a possibility in two ways. One, because it could introduce people in public life into COVID calls, which then might draw journalists to COVID calls. So I still had this ambition of connecting journalists with researchers. And I thought that if COVID calls also could talk to people who were very much in the making of the history of the pandemic, that might become a common ground for the bringing of researchers and journalists together. But also just to document this history, um, even though this story has been the lead story around the world for two years, we still, we only know it in a very hazy, gauzy way. And so I just followed my intuition to interview people who I thought were important to have their perspective, even if they were not traditional disaster researchers. And I want to give an example of that. Now I'm going to show a clip. I mentioned inviting all the members of Congress. This is Representative Nakima Williams of Georgia. She had a tremendous story to tell. Um, it was hard to, to talk to her. Her staff was was amazing. And um, I went up to Keist to do this interview. You know, I'm um, 13 hours ahead of East Coast time here in South Korea. And um, the interview was was set for a certain time. But of course, she's busy and, and the interview kept getting moved and moved and moved. I think by the time we finally did it, it was 4 a.m. And I was in a building all alone in my office all alone on Keist campus. Um, the internet connection was not the best, and it was still a really dynamic call and a learning experience for me. So I want to show this clip now of Representative Nakima Williams. This comes from March 29th, 2021, just a little over a year ago. College in Talladega. Alabama. Congresswoman Nikima Williams, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. I am joining you from Atlanta, Georgia, in my home office that I feel like I spend way too much time in and have spent too much time in over the last year. Um, the pandemic situation in Georgia, we just open up vaccines to every person over the age of 16 in the state. So we are getting shots in the arms and trying to do our part. Georgia is still, unfortunately, second to last, though, in vaccines administered. So we have a long ways to go here in, in Georgia. Your own COVID story goes back to the beginning of the pandemic. And I wonder if I could get you to start just by talking a little bit about that. You were diagnosed with COVID while you were serving in the Georgia State Senate. Is that right? Yes. Um, early on, I was one of the first people in the state to get the pen to get the virus. And I remember um, two weeks ago when it was the one year anniversary, it popped up on my Facebook feed and people were saying you were the first person that I knew that had COVID. And I didn't really think it was real until I saw that you were sick. But I was really sick, Scott. I was in bed for three weeks straight and ended up in the ER. And when I first um, I first knew that I was sick, I had a fever and didn't understand what was going on. And we never got get sick in our house, even with the um, with some a preschooler going to school every day. We just like we I guess were resilient against germs. We didn't even have a thermometer in the house. And so my husband right. went and got his meat thermometer from our barbecue to try and like see if we could figure out my temperature. And there were no tests available when I first got sick. It took me um, over a week 
to get even a test and then another week to get the results back. So I was sick for two weeks before I even got a diagnosis of being positive and then in bed for three weeks. So it was, I didn't know which side of this I was going to turn out on. It was pretty bad. I'm sorry you were so sick. And I'm, of course, glad that you recovered. And it must have been an incredibly stressful time. I, I remember reading at that time, too, there was this speculation about how you had gotten it and you know, various members not being uh, safe and, and courteous in the way that they might treat each other in terms of infection control. And one of the things struck me, I, I went back and looked at an interview you did at that time, and you did really great public health messaging. You didn't blame. You just said, you know, this is something you can be asymptomatic and you can spread it to people without knowing it. And I thought you hit a, a grace note as a potential political ally across the aisle, but you also spread good public health information at the same time. I don't know if that was intentional on your part or just who you are, but it was really impressive. So at the time, we were hearing a lot from people saying that they weren't sick. And we had heard from national public health leaders that you could spread the virus and still be asymptomatic. And so I wanted to push back against some of the notion that you had to be laying in a hospital bed and knowingly sick to spread this virus. And there was no way of knowing exactly who I contracted it from. And that was the only way we were going to get people to truly understand that you can't go about business as usual. You need to wear a mask. You need to stay home as much as possible because masks weren't even readily available. We had people at home making masks out of t-shirts. And I was pushing back against my governor against this law that we had on the books that restricted adults from even wearing masks in public. And so we had a lot that we needed to be doing as leaders. And oftentimes as leaders, you have to step out of the comfort zone of what you want to do, what you're doing at home personally, and make sure that you're setting forth a good path for the rest of the country. I want to maybe just talk to you a little bit now about what the first few weeks of this year were like. You you gave an interview to the Washington Post uh, recently. And you said, this is a remarkable line. I just want to quote. You said, as a new member of Congress, I've, you've been a member for three Wednesdays. The first Wednesday, we had an insurrection and an attack on the U.S. Capitol. The second Wednesday, we had a vote to impeach the president. And my third Wednesday in Congress, I was there witnessing the inauguration and the transfer of power. That is really extraordinary. And I want to start with the first part of that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your January 6th experience. So, and Scott, that next Wednesday, my husband told me, he said, Nakeem, I'm going to need your um, Wednesday to be, I, the highlight of the day is I got a bagel in the Longworth snack bar. I don't need you to have any more, <laughs> more big days, days right now. But that day, January 6th, my husband and my five-year-old son were still in town because I'd just gotten sworn in three days before, and it was a big deal for our family. And I moved into my new apartment um, right in Navy Yard. And I told my husband that morning, because we've been advised to get to the Capitol early because they were expecting protests, but it was so that we could avoid the traffic and the delays in getting there. And we got there early. He dropped me off because I don't have a car in D.C., and we, I went in and I told him, I was like, well, once I get inside of the building, I'll be fine because this is one of the safest places in the country. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. I'd been up all night the night before because Georgia's two Senate seats had just been called and I've been doing press throughout the middle of the night. And so I was still watching election results 
And I was an elector. I was one of the 16 electors in the state of Georgia. And so I was getting ready for my very first floor speech as a member of Congress to go down and defend the 16 electoral college votes from Georgia, because Georgia was anticipated to be one of the states that was going to be contested. And so I had my remarks ready and I was preparing myself, a little nervous because I'm a new member of Congress. I'm only three days in and I'm going to be speaking on the floor against something this big. And I never got that moment to go down to the floor because of COVID. Um, members stay in their offices until votes are called. And so we were told at the end of the Arizona objection, the members from Georgia should come down to the floor to get ready for the Georgia objection. So I was sitting in my office and getting myself prepared to walk down, which I still didn't even really know how to get through the tunnels and on the floor of the Capitol without a staff member taking me. And I saw, I was watching TV and my husband called me and he said, Nakima, something is going on. They just removed the speaker from the chamber. And I still didn't understand the magnitude of it. And I started getting updates on Twitter. And then I realized that the United States Capitol had been breached. We were under attack. I could hear the sirens and we closed our blinds in our office and turned off the location services on our phone so that nobody could find us. Media started coming through asking me if I could do interviews and where was I? And it was a scary moment. And that evening was even scarier because we continued to the work. We got done about 4 a.m. because we didn't allow um, a domestic terrorist attack to stop us from our constitutional duty of certifying the Electoral College votes. But that next day in talking with my son, my five-year-old son, Carter, he had been watching some of the news coverage as my husband was trying to figure out if I was okay. And he said, mommy, are we safe? And I tried to assure him that we were safe because my apartment is not on a ground level. And he said, but the bad guys can climb the building. Can't they get up here where we are? And so it's been quite the experience of trying to make sure that my son understands that he's safe at home. But after that, I now have 24-hour security right now in my driveway because I've gotten so many threats and it's still not safe to serve as a member of Congress in this country. That is uh, one of the interviews that I did with members of Congress, Nakima Williams, representative from Georgia. She said there that the extraordinary three Wednesdays of January and um, that was episode number 248. And just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. And so this is episode number 500 of COVID Calls. I'm showing some clips now to give a kind of overview of the collection. It's a little bit hard to, to generalize, but as I'm trying to generalize by showing earlier some clips with disaster researchers, and now I'm talking about the transition that COVID Calls made as it went into um, later in 2020 and into 2021, where I started to interview um, newsmakers like Nikima Williams, um, people who wouldn't identify themselves necessarily as disaster researchers. Um, and um, this also was a period of time in which I began to try to internationalize the collection as best I could. As I said earlier, uh, and when I gave a methodological note about COVID calls, one of the things I discovered is how narrow um, my focus was and how impoverished my research network was. And so um, 
you know, social media has a strange impact uh, in, in this sense in that um, when you go into social media and you put some ideas out there, you, you might get a very broad response. And so you think you have a big network. Um, but when you actually consider the books on your shelves, and I would note from that last clip, there were only a couple of books on my shelves. My books hadn't arrived from America at that time. I had just arrived in Korea. The, look, the books on our shelves are reflections of the discipline that we come up in if we're academics. Um, and even that, we're only going to be uh, exposed to a small percentage of the works that come out of our own discipline. Um, it's not a failing. It's just the reality of, of our lives as researchers. There's only so much we can do. And our professional networks, of course, are uh, mediated by our who we are, the opportunities that we have. As I said earlier, I've had tremendous opportunities. And so nothing has kept me from building as large of a network as I had time and will to do. And it was still incredibly small. And so that really came home to me when I moved to Korea and tried to expand the um, internationalize the calls uh, because of my uh, lack of language skill. I had to immediately rely on on people here, Korean speakers, to try to bring Koreans um, and other guests from parts of East Asia into the COVID calls. And But that has been an ambition, and it remains an ambition as COVID calls goes forward. I want to show a clip from um, one of the attempts to do that. And in this one, um, this is one of the calls that I did in partnership with Hyuna Kyum, who's a graduate student here at KAIST and a brilliant student and has done her own research about COVID recently, about COVID and plastic waste, which everyone should consult. She's a master's thesis, which is uh, she's just completed. And um, she agreed to serve as a, as a translator, real-time translator. So this is a, a, what I think is quite a remarkable interview with Hyung Jang, who is a member of the Justice Party and the National Assembly in Korea. And she is a disability rights activist who's also a filmmaker and made a film about her, uh, her sister who had been in an institution. Um, one of the facts of COVID early in Korea is that uh, people who have uh, mental health needs who are institutionalized suffered um, death rates much higher than the general population. And so as we've seen, COVID not only reflects inequalities in the world, it produces new inequalities. And that's true of disasters generally. Disasters are not one-time events. Disasters reveal the world that we live in, but they make new orders as well. And COVID has done that in Korea, just as it did in North America. This opportunity to speak to a member, again, I spoke with Nikima Williams, now I had the chance to speak to a member of the National Assembly in Korea. I couldn't turn that down. Hyunakum did real-time translation, and so I'm going to show a, a short clip of this. It's about three minutes. Uh, Hyung Jang talking about, and to set this up, this is her talking about um, an action uh, protest for disability rights activists in Korea in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so, okay. 
the, the rope, I, I should mention about the rope, what that means. Uh, the reason why they're uh, handing the rope, having the rope in their hands is that uh, police were around them to actually break out the rally uh, if or once they uh, break the distancing measure to distance one meter. Uh, but then they wanted to make sure that they're sticking to the one meter distance and actually they're crossing the soul across. I see. I'm, I'm just gonna scroll down and show a few more of the, of the photos if that's okay. And if any time she wants to add commentary, it's very welcome. Mm -hmm. 그래서 지금 이제 문재인 정부가 출범을 할때어 공약 사항 중에서 이제 탈시설을 포함한 굉장히 중요한 장애인 정책들을 이제 이행하겠다는 게 있었는데 이제 그것들이 제대로 지켜지지 않았어요. 이제 그랬기 때문에 이에 대한 문제 제기를 하기 위해서 이제 전국에 있는 장애인권 단체들이 서울에 집결해서 이제 그 문제를 해결을 촉구를 이제 정부에 하는 상황이었고 이제 처음 보건 어, 보건 정책을 정하는 것은 보건복지부이지만 어, 예산을 다루는 것은 또 이제 기획재정위원회라고 어, 기획재정부이기 때문에 이제 보건복지부도 호명을 하고 마지막에는 이제 기재부를 호명하는 굉장히 전략적인 어, 시위였다라고 말씀을 드리겠습니다. 저 그리고 저기 나와 계신 분들 중에는 어, 탈시설 당사자 분들도 여러 분 계세요. Ah, oh, so the reason why they're up there, ah, uh, gathered from all around the nations and then gathered up there in Seoul, in the midst of Seoul, is that ah, uh, at the first of Moon's administration in Korea, there were pledges ah uh, promising that ah uh, we will achieve the deinstitutionalization, but then it was not really achieved. So people, uh, many, many kind of disability justice activist groups were gathered there. And then uh, at the, it was really strategic movement because they were also calling for uh, changes, not only the Ministry of Health and Welfare, um, but then, but also the Ministry of Strategy and Finance because the actual budget to support the institutionalization might come from the Ministry of Strategy and Finance. So we can see how strategic and how active those people gathered around were. were. Wow, that is, um, those are some powerful images and thank you for, thank you for sharing those. And, and I'm not surprised also that a filmmaker such as yourself understands the power of a visual. <laughs> okay, once again, that was uh, uh, showing some of the attempt to bring broader international perspectives, and in this case, an intersection going on uh, an episode about disability rights, speaking with a Korean policymaker, an elected official in the National Assembly, who also happens to be uh, a filmmaker, um, and the episode was conducted in Korean with real-time Korean to English uh, translation performed expertly by Hyuna Kyum. It was one of the most logistically difficult calls that we did. Um, it also points the way to, I think, the future of COVID calls. And I, you know, I hope, as I said earlier, that other people will take this idea or ideas like this and, and run with them 
um, certainly do much, much more with it than I have. And one of the areas I really hope we can do is have cross-cultural dialogue, COVID calls that really are multilingual. That's a, a huge ambition that I have going into the next phase of the work after episode 500. One more clip from a non-researcher. At some point, it occurred to me um, I, that I needed to interview my family. And in part because the COVID calls was also serving from the beginning, I made no um, bones about the fact that this was a sort of a journal for me as well. It's impossible. Um, this was, as I said, this was always a kind of a personal project, one where I was talking to people who were informing my thinking for some maybe future project. And then I realized pretty early that the conversations themselves formed uh, a kind of a workspace where many people could participate and that itself was a product. But also like everybody, um, I was trying to navigate the problems of distance from family. Most of my family lives in Texas and uh, I have not been back to see my family now since the uh, winter of 2019 and that hits hard. And so I wanted to also have discussions with family members in the archive and I'm gonna play now a few minutes of my discussion two conversations I had with my father. This one's actually just from a few days ago. I had the chance to talk to him twice. The first one was the single worst technical difficulties that I had on any COVID call. It was a complete meltdown of the technology on my side. And so I disappeared from the call entirely for several minutes and my father just kept going. Uh, he just kept talking and occasionally would sort of pause and uh, then kept going. And a lot of, when I rejoined the call, he was promoting COVID calls. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was touching, it was wonderful. Um, and um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with him again. And we talked about real topics, my father and I did. We talked about politics, we talked about vaccination. Um, and I'm gonna show a, a clip of this call. It might seem familiar to some of you who've also been trying to keep in touch with family and talk about difficult topics like vaccination with parents during the pandemic. Let me bring this up now. Steve Knowles, episode 496 on COVID calls. He lives in Georgetown, Texas. One of the things, you know, I, I've been, I asked guests uh, to share personal memories as you're, just as you're sharing right now from the pandemic. And you know, one of the most constant themes, and I'm, I think this will um, resonate with you a lot. One of the most constant themes, people remember not their own vaccination experience, but they remember when their parents got vaccinated for COVID. And that marked a really important moment for them in the course of this ongoing disaster. And I wonder if you might speak a little bit to the process of how you how you managed to get vaccinated there and, and kind of the challenges of getting that and what that meant to you and to the family there. Several days ago, uh, my wife was on with you, Harriet, and she described that we have a, another person living in the house with us. Um, uh, my mother-in-law, who today is 89, <clears throat> So there was an urgency uh, in our household that we get her vaccinated, but just as important that we get vaccinated. So we were on the watch list to keep saying, when would we have a chance to sign up 
to call in to get our number so we could go. Uh, actually, fortunately, fortunately, here in some city, to a community center and um, get our vaccinations, which happened for all three of us in this household in January and then in February of 2021. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. And then uh, came around and got our boosters in August of 21, all of it being the Moderna. Um, so we were very, very much on the forefront of getting vaccinated and getting boosted. And it's, um, it's an interesting thing about maybe just our own metabolism. But um, I heard about a, a study that the University of Texas was doing on um, people who had been vaccinated and what was their status in terms of antigens and reactions to their vaccinations. And so I, uh, Harriet and I both said, let's do this. And it was free. And so three, di three different times we went down had blood drawn to get a reading on what was our antigen level where we adequately uh, protected against the COVID. And um, the last two times, my results came back off the chart high and basically was in excess of 2,500. And they stopped counting after that point. Whether that gave me a false sense of security, I don't know. But it certainly, it was a, it was better than being like one of my friends who came in at zero, and he wow. really made plans to go back and get another vaccination shot. Uh, that's I love that. First of all, I love the fact that you got involved in the study, and I'm really proud of you for doing that. Actually, and it's like I think that's I think it's great, and. Um, also, you've told me pretty consistently um, about that high. I'm not sure exactly what they're measuring, but you're off the chart in terms of basically the immunity that's been conferred to your body from the vaccine. And uh, you seem pretty proud about that, Dad. Well, I'm not sure I, what I can attribute that to. Maybe there's a bunch of hamburgers that I eat, but there was something <laughs> that... Basically, you should work that angle, Dad. You should st you should re you should make that case. It's the it's the barbecue diet combined with knew, the vaccine. Yeah, you knew I was going to spin into Whataburger somewhere along this conversation. But, I mean, you have to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I love the way you talk about that and tell that story. And uh, and you know, I think the more I've I've studied and had guests on who talk about vaccination and who talk about vaccination, not anti-vaxxers, but who talk about people who are skeptical or have needed some time to get where they needed to, to go and, and have it. I actually think there's a huge swath of the population that listening to you talk about your experience is more powerful than seeing Tony Fauci on, on TV because you're part of their world and they're going to trust you more than they're going to trust somebody they never met. But the, the, the process for all of us, millions of people who've got the vaccine, vaccinations, was just a no-brainer, and it was easy, and the price was right. And we're all from that, those people that have gray hair like me, we're from that generation of the polio epidemic in the 50s, where we simply got cubes with uh, the salt vaccina vaccination uh, and we knew that there was benefit from 
protecting yourself when there was a huge uh, epidemic that was flooding through the society. Now, we have, you and I have talked about that there may be some people that are politically just don't feel like that they need the government to be intervening with their decision on how they take care of their body. And so we accept that. But I also it makes me angry that some people put me at risk and my wife at risk and my mother-in-law at risk simply because of um, maybe their own impressions that the government's telling them to do something. Um, and Scott, you know where I land pretty much on the political spectrum. And, and I would say that this is one of those cases where I think the government needed to be even more aggressive and basically the process of mask vaccinations and anything else that could mitigate this this basically hideous uh, pandemic that's hit our our communities uh, and i'm optimistic that we're coming out of it i'm also realistic that there's a, still another variant that's hiding in its shadows and starting to peek around it, so it might be coming back into the society again. So um, I'm happy that uh, those of us who did vaccinations uh, did it for the good of, of everybody, but uh, very selfishly, we did it in this household for uh, our own well being. That's my interview from just this past week with my father on COVID calls. And, and that wraps up the second part of the um, theme I wanted to demonstrate in which COVID calls involves discussions with um, non-academics, um, people who wouldn't identify as disaster researchers, but who over time, um, uh, suggestions of myself and others, it felt relevant to try to include them in the archive. And I'm going into the details of the describing you know, the selection process of guests. It's not something I've talked very often about on COVID calls. It is something I'll be writing about for the COVID calls digital archive, because it's the kind of question that future researchers like myself would be just as interested in um, why some people weren't invited and what happened behind the scenes in terms of how invitations went out and who agreed and who didn't. I think that's an important part of it. It doesn't usually come through in the calls. And so, you know, the calls do give a, a, a sense of a sort of openness and honesty because it's a group of people talking, but it is also a production, right? We are bounded by the technologies that we have to use. Um, I don't edit anything out of the conversations, um, but as I said earlier, not everyone was platformed in COVID calls. I did not interview an anti-vaxxer and anti-vaccination came up frequently. It was a common source of conversation, even with my father, as you saw. I think he was incredibly eloquent about it um, and rational, uh, as always, Steve Knowles is. But um, I didn't then decide that we should bring the other side for that for that conversation. And that's just part of the editorial judgment um, that I made and the others who talked about this with me, we've made about how to how to use COVID calls. So I just wanted to make that note there. Also, I just want to say in general, like, it was great to talk to my dad on this project that has consumed um, two years of my um, of my time, sleeping and waking time in the, throughout this pandemic. Um, so let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. This is episode number 500. And just a few minutes left in the episode. 
I want to now turn to a third category, a third way to think about COVID calls. These are just preliminary ways to think about this collection. Others smarter than me, I hope, will immerse themselves in the collection in the months, years to come and, and do much better job than I am right now describing sort of the stretch of it. The COVID calls in time came to serve as a space also for memorialization and by extension as a platform for political action. Hosting guests who have lost loved ones to the pandemic um, became important to me on COVID calls. And I hope that COVID calls, even in its modest way, has served as a forum for victim support. This is in line with the kind of research that I have done as a disaster researcher. I've been incredibly humbled and privileged to be invited into communities of disaster victims and document their life and their work as they advocate for disaster justice. I've had the chance to do that researching September 11, Hurricane Katrina, communities in the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana, and now here in Korea as well. In fact, that's the research interest that drew me to South Korea, which was to um, work on the issue of the family members of the children who died in the Sewol Ferry disaster. And so when early in the pandemic, I wrote, co-wrote an editorial in the Washington Post with uh, historian Jay Aronson. And um, we wrote a piece that talked about the need and published it um, early in the pandemic and published it calling for memorialization. And, and I remember being asked at that time, isn't it too early to be talking about memorialization? And I thought it was already too late at that time to start those discussions. What I did not anticipate at that time is that COVID calls would continue long enough to become a platform um, for victim family members to speak. That's another thing I should have anticipated, but again, I thought it would go about three months and we would talk to experts and then we would wrap up the project. In the summer of 2020, I remember distinctly where I was when I first read about Kristen Urquiza, who was is an environmental activist whose father died of COVID, Mark Anthony Urquiza. And then she um, did a, a kind of a humble action. She put a, did a protest vigil in front of the state house in Arizona. She felt that her father was um, a victim of disinformation. And um, so she um, did that protest and it became a touchstone. I think she was a person who many people looked to and said, yeah, I feel that way too. I feel like we need to speak out about this and make this political. One of the things that's often said after a disaster, mass shooting or any kind of disaster, and it's happened with COVID as well, is that you hear this discourse of, well, let's not make it political. Anyone who tells you a disaster isn't political is lying to you. Disasters are themselves politics. They are reflections of the politics that we live in. We think about politics as a struggle over power and the definition of the world that we live in. How could anything be more political than a disaster? And seeing Kristen being right up front, and then she um, eventually was asked to speak at the Democratic National Convention, and then she founded uh, Mark by COVID and has become a leader for her victims' advocacy um, with COVID and is advocating now for a COVID Memorial Day. I had her on just a couple of days ago, um, one of, again, several conversations. I've had her back many times, and she has guest hosted COVID calls, which is not something I would have anticipated, and it, she was tremendous, wonderful episodes that she did there about education and about with other victim family members and the struggles that they've gone through to tell their stories to be heard by people in a time in which a lot of people haven't wanted to talk about COVID, uh, which powerful people have not talked nearly enough about COVID and have not talked enough about the impact of COVID that goes beyond just those who've died, but how it affects family members 
circles out into much wider communities as Ashton Verdery and his research collaborators have told us the, the bereavement a multiplier of nine people at least for every person who dies is a real factor of COVID. So I reached out to Kristen. I did not expect her to write me back. She did, and she agreed to come on COVID calls. That was a turning point for COVID calls that took place in September. This is from September 24th, 2020. We'll show this clip and that'll be the end of the 500th episode, or almost the end. I have a little surprise at the end, but let me turn this over now to Kristen Urquiza, episode number 134. people who may not give them the time of day or, or or call them bad names because they're wearing a mask. And I just think that is is quite beautiful. Just want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking with Kristen Urquiza, who's the founder of Marked by COVID and her father died, Mark Anthony Urquiza died of COVID-19 in June. So I guess in many cases, we might expect that after the obituary individual, um, there would have been a sort of return to some kind of normal life. And from what I can tell, it's been anything but that for you since then. Over the summer, uh, major news outlets started to write about you, started to write about the vigil and marked by COVID. And I speak for myself. But first of all, I should say thank you, because you gave a lot of people the ability to channel their rage and their confusion. I'm sure you've heard this. But, you know, it takes a great person to sort of stand up and say, channel it here. And I think giving that ability for people to see the humanity that was suffering was really crucial. And then all of a sudden, you're pulled into the whirlwind, which is American politics in the year 2020. I, I guess I'd like you just to talk a little bit about what that was like. Suddenly you became a political figure. You appeared at the Democratic National Convention. Your phone probably never stopped ringing. <laughs> yeah. E email boxes full every day. Um, yeah. What's it like to suddenly become the head of a movement? Well, my life has changed. Um, it looks nothing like it did, you know, six months ago. And, and all of our lives have changed. But, you know, in this particular scenario, yeah, I sort of carved out this path. And um, I don't know if I quite understand what it fully looks like. And I'll, I say that because for the most part, all of this is happening from the same exact chair that you and I are talking in right now, uh, these same four walls. And um, that both allows me to do a lot more, not needing to travel different places to do public appearances, but it also does kind of remove some of the context that, um, one would expect to sort of reinforce what's happening. So on the night that I spoke at the DNC, um, I also spoke at the same time, you know, in the same night as o uh, Michelle Obama. And, you know, the commentators were saying that both Michelle Obama and I had the standout moments. So that was amazing to be kind of elevated to, to that level. I had never expected my name to be said in the same sentence as Michelle Obama's, but it wasn't like I got a fist bump from her afterwards. Um, so that's just surreal, I guess, is what I'm saying. It is a very surreal experience. And I have been in a marathon literally since the day my dad woke up ill. I mean, the description that you give of being in the same four walls to have these remarkable things happen is so apt for everyone mm -hmm. right now. I mean, yours is a relatively extreme version of that. Uh, you know, 
when I finish my lecture, I don't then get a the media say I sounded as good as Michelle Obama, but <laughs> we are conducting our lives in these yes. spaces and just the way you and I are, are interacting right now. Um, I, I think, I know people would like to hear a little bit more about what it's like to get an email from whoever is organizing the DNC. I mean, what did you have in mind when you were invited to give that, to give <laughs> that talk? I was actually just reminded the other day that it was a tweet versus an email. <laughs> oh, of course, because it's 2020 and that's, you know, yeah. an email takes too long, yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, as you had mentioned, um, you know, following the vigil and the launch of Mark by COVID, you know, we started working with others impacted and sponsoring their loved ones on us obituaries and um, had gotten, you know, national, international, local media coverage. And it just ha so happens to align perfectly with the, you know, election cycle. And so someone from the DNC reached out to me over Twitter um, on direct message, which I hadn't even known I had open <laughs> and said, Hey, this is who I am. Um, and are you interested in connecting? And, you know, I was a little suspicious at first, but I Googled the guy's name and he turned out to be legit and, you know, in the vice president's like inner circle. And so I said, sure, I will chat with you to see what's up. Um, and we actually had a, I, I, connected with him a couple days later we had a few kind of conversations um and you know after the second conversation he came back saying that uh the dnc would would really enjoy having me do you know a standalone speech and in that moment i knew that was a really big deal did, did you think it was going to be like one of these town hall things where people affected by covid we're going to be speaking with, they did that a lot at the DNC with Joe Biden in one room with the mask and then people mm -hmm. on screens, quite different from the way the RNC attempted to do theirs, by the way. Right. We might talk about that later. But you had a single standalone speaking spot. I did, yeah. And one of the options was that I could have been in sort of one of this town hall type scenarios. Um, there was a couple of other sort of smaller things too. They asked me like what I would be comfortable doing. And, um, you know, I said I'd, I would be a, a privilege and an honor to participate in whatever way the campaign thought would be best for me sharing my story. And I would be comfortable also doing a standalone speech. Um, and, you know, I, when I said that, I knew it was a big deal, but I also, um, to your point earlier, part of what has been driving me, my purpose, my oxygen is really helping other people and is helping other people channel this incredible amount of rage that they feel into something that's productive. And for me personally, that is something that I thought a lot about when my dad was sick, that if I don't do something, this is just going to all internalize and be not good for my own personal health. Uh, that's such an important point to make, although a lot of people might find support in a small group or just with family. I mean, you've had the courage to take it public. And these days that doesn't come without risk. I mean, yeah. I think back to Sandy Hook, which was the first time I really realized we were not living in the country that I had grown up in. I actually, I say that with a, with a lot of privilege. I think a lot of people have lived in, in that world, but I had not lived in a world where I realized that people could die and other people with knowing nothing about it could say that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 20 kindergartners could die and yeah. people say that didn't happen. And there's a lot of COVID denialism out there. It's remarkable. Um, 
it truly, truly is. And that is, I think that exists because of uh, leadership. It would always exist. There's always going to be some naysayers, some small percentage. Um, that you know, I, I know that to be true, but the to the extent is because of our response and our leaders, but also the the impact of that on COVID survivors, the long haulers, people who've lost loved ones, like that's just cruelty on a whole new level. That you know, we're we're gonna. I mean, you know this. We're we're going to be dealing with the the outcomes of this impact for. The rest of our lives. The rest of our lives, for sure. Kristen Urquiza there, the first chance I had to interview her. Saw lots of interviews with Kristen Urquiza in the summer of 2020. One of the things we can do on COVID calls is have a long chat. It's one of the advantages. Uh, and my guests, again, have been so generous with their time. And... I'm going to move towards the conclusion now. Um, told you everything I know about COVID calls. And um, there'll be opportunities, of course, um, as I said, for researchers and those who are just interested um, to make use of this archive. The archive goes live quite soon. And all of the calls will be available in audio, video, and transcript, as well as artworks, which will be available. And I've invited every guest who's been on to write essays about COVID calls. And as I said, I'm raising funds right now through uh, GoFundMe. You can find that, uh, go to GoFundMe.com and look for COVID calls. And there's a fundraiser there. And every dollar of that is going to go to young researchers who I would like to then start using the, the archival collections and see what they find. And then that's really where this is going. I mean, this is to, an effort. I read you the names earlier. It took me five minutes to read the names of all of the people who've, who've given time and heart to work on this project and all of the guests, some of them incredibly busy guests like Kristen, uh, like Senator Bob Casey, um, and, and so many others who've come on, journalists Ed Young, people on deadline have made time to come on and, and talk. Greg Gonsalves has come on, so many others um, who, I, you know, you can read the full list for yourself in 500 episodes. We've talked to lots of people and had a lot of great chats, but I think there is also something about having the time for the chat. And that was, again, an artifact of the early period of the pandemic. Of course, we all were still expected to do all of our work, but time was distorted in those days. It felt to me like I had more time. And I realized later it's because I stopped sleeping. Um, so I was making more time, but we did make time for these long chats. I think we should keep that opportunity open. And COVID calls, um, I've had lots of guests who said before I had them on, they said, uh, how can we possibly fill an hour? I said, don't worry, we'll fill an hour. And we always have. And um, I've always learned. And so this is what I wanted to tell you about COVID, COVID calls. And um, yes, I do own more than one jacket, although I tend to rely upon favorite garments. And yes, um, as I watch these, I realize uh, I look tired and I have a, definitely have a face made for radio, but I'm a historian, um, you know, so I hope you'll excuse that. And, and I hope that people listen to the audio podcasts and, and read the transcript. As I've said to people sometimes, and they worry about the, the um, dramaturgy of this and their lighting, and I want the calls to look good, but in reality, as a historian, I'm in it for the, for the transcripts. 
And I'm really so happy that we can bring those to you soon. I want to return really to where I started, which is thanks to gratitude, happiness that um, my family members, some of whom have had COVID, are all okay. And um, express if you've been touched by COVID, if you've had a family member who's sick or you yourself sick or um, someone who's died, uh, express just my um, concern and hope that you're doing okay. And my hope also that we can turn the skills that we have to make sense of this disaster on an ongoing basis together. Disaster Researchers for Justice is a new organization that's been founded by Samantha Montano and Junkie Marumba and myself and many others who are giving time for that. That's just one thing that's come out of this time period that I probably wouldn't have done before. So COVID has changed the way I work and I was already a disaster researcher. It's probably changed your life too. So I'll stop there and uh, just to give a little quote from Walt Whitman online from one of his poems. I'm gonna stop there as he said uh, in his poem, Poets to Come, uh, stop there expecting the main things from you. And what I'd like to do now in closing, I'm gonna give the last word to John Gorka, who's a singer songwriter who was a guest on uh, earlier this week. And I wasn't, didn't know what he was gonna perform when I had him on. Um, he's a performer of tremendous wit and humor and also empathy. And he performed a great song, which isn't on any of his records um, after saying some really great things about um, care during this time. And the song is called Hold On. So I'll turn it over to John Gorka and that's the end of episode 500. Thank you so much for joining me and thanks for um, watching COVID calls. If this is the first COVID calls you watch, they don't usually go this long. I don't usually talk this much. Um, but I wanted to take this opportunity after two years to say a little bit more about what I was doing, what I was hoping to do, and give some ideas about where this project might go in the future. So stay healthy, everybody. I'm going to turn this over now to John Gorka. And please do look for episode number 501 and the opening of the COVID Calls Digital Archive in just a few days' time. This uh, one more song. Uh, it's a song. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic's been hard on everybody. You know, but some people were having trouble even before this thing hit. And it, it, and to them, uh, this is the song for them. If you're having a rough time, uh, you're not alone. Yeah, you're not alone. I think having a rough time at, in times like this is is kind of the the, the normal. Right, exactly right way to uh, feel. It's a song called Hold On. This is uh, not on any of my records, but it is, it is on one of those one song concerts on YouTube. Trouble knocks you dead. Hidden, tomorrow it is hidden. So much comes unbidden, it makes it hard to plan ahead. 
to be normal and formal again. No heat of the breath or the skin. Cold one, the winter was a cold one. And if you are an old one, it served to make you mean. With bird songs, I tend to get the words wrong. I begin and end strong, humming mumble in between. Stay until the night's gone. Stay till you can dream. 